Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Thank you, God, for having me here. Um, uh, it's been a. I'm, I'm humbled to be amongst you guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, is that clear? Yeah, is that clear, everybody? Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, what I thought would be something that might, might be different, might be something that we haven't thought through is just to, uh, for many of us, when we're reading the, the, uh, the Bible, it seems that the New Testament speaks for itself, for many of us. The stories and um, the teachings are more clearer to us, um, and at least to the society that we live in, given that we live in a society that's heavily influenced by Christianity from its foundations. So the moral teachings and so forth of Christ infiltrated our society in one way or another. But um, the difficulty for many Christians is to read the Old Testament um, with that same fervor and same openness, um, simply because we're completely detached culturally. We're detached also um, morally speaking. Um, we project our own morals onto the Old Testament to a civilization that's totally different to ours. Um, a mentality that's totally different to ours. And often at times, uh, especially the further back in the Old Testament gets, you know, the more Genesis and Exodus, the more drier it is and the higher it is for us to really benefit from it, except for morals and stories and characters. Um, having said that, I think what has been missing in our approach is there's a key to the Old Testament. And for us, that key is actually Christ. Um, if you ask, I was once having a conversation with a Jewish man, very well known. It was just happened by accident. And I kept on saying the word Old Testament, Old Testament. And I'm just used to that, being Christian. And his default kept on starting me saying, old to who? <laughs> old to <laughs> It's not old to them. <laughs> it's old to us. Um, but to them, the fulfillment, and to us, the fulfillment, and the purpose of the stories, the teachings, the writings of the Old Testament was to be found in ultimately the one who they're expecting, the Messiah. Yeah? And so for us, Christ being the Messiah, the fulfillment has arrived and the pages of the Old Testament mean so much more now. Yeah? And so I thought um, tonight, even though we might have read Genesis as a whole, and in particular the first one or two chapters, um, over and over again, whether it's through Sunday school, through our own Bible readings, or through um, our uh, Bible studies, and contemplated it, but maybe we have to read it through the eyes of Christ. Okay? And I am not getting this interpretation, or this style of interpretation, not necessarily the contemplation, but this style from my own, St. Paul will speak about it when we read about it in a moment. Christ himself had that same approach to read into the Old Testament to try and find him there. Yeah? Um, and he said it to the Pharisees themselves. You, know? um, you, know, you claim to know the scriptures, but the scriptures speak of me. Okay? So, um, as an opening to tonight, 
if, um, if it's okay, if we can go to 2 Corinthians, just as a quick reference there. 2 Corinthians, um, and it's in, my apologies, sorry, third, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it, we go to verse 12, just as an opening for us, and it's all going to be on the screen, hopefully. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 12. This is St. Paul speaking about the Jewish people reading the Old Testament. And in particular, the first five books were called the books of Moses. So when the terminology of Moses comes up, it comes up in two ways. Either the person of Moses or the writings of Moses. But the name Moses is understood as the writings of Moses. So it's when Moses is read... Yeah, they're referring to the first five books in particular. So, first, uh, Second Corinthians chapter three, um, from verse twelve, it says, um, "Therefore, since we have such hope, yeah, are we up there? Yeah, good. Therefore, since we have such hope, um, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away." Does anyone know what references he's talking about? What scene there? When he put a veil over his face? When he went, up to, the when he went to, to do what? And he asked the Lord, show me yourself. Yep. And the Lord said, he, the Lord himself had to put a veil on him. Correct. And what was he going to up to the mountain for? Uh, 40 days and 40 nights to get the commandments. To receive, to receive God's word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to receive God's word, ultimately. Um, so, Moses put a veil over his face. And then... St. Paul uses that analogy of the veil being over Moses' face in the way we're reading the Old Testament. Okay? So, verse 14. But their hearts were blinded. He's talking about the, old, the, the, um, the Israelites of olden time because their hearts were blinded. Moses had to have a veil over his face. Then he continues. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Yeah? But even to this day, when Moses is read, so the Old Testament, and in particular the first five books, a veil lie, lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So according to St. Paul, the key to which, by which we read into the Old Testament is in Christ. Once one person is in Christ, the words come through, the meanings of Christ comes through from the Old Testament. Yeah? Or the veil has been lifted. Our eyes have been opened, so to speak. No longer do we read, but we read with a purpose. With that purpose in mind being finding Christ. Okay? Well, Michael, sorry, yes. Um, I don't mean to play the devil's advocate, but it's easy for us to say that. True. Because 2,000 years down the track, we've got all this education from the fathers of the church telling us this, and now we understand it because of that um, enlightenment. But back then, Christ didn't, wasn't even incarnate. He didn't exist on earth. He didn't come to earth um, before then. Mm. They didn't have him. They didn't speak to him. So it must have been incredibly um, difficult for them to be able to see Christ through the books of Moses or books of the prophets or whoever, because Christ knew the entire Old Testament. Yep. So, St. Paul, first of all, he isn't talking about, um, he's using the analogy of the olden times 
and is relating it to his time that these same people have the same veil that Moses had over his face where they, couldn't, they can't see the glory of God until they come to believe in Christ. So he's simply using an Old Testament story that they can all relate to, saying, guess what? The people of Israel, when they looked at Moses, they couldn't see the glory of God because there was a veil over it. And the people of Israel now still can't see the glory of God because until that veil is lifted, meaning until they believe in Christ, then they see the glory of God in Christ. So um, clearly he's not referring to the, those in the olden times, he's referring to those in his time, refusing to take on the belief in Christ, to read the scripture the way it was intended to be fulfilled in Christ. Yeah? And the same thing applies. We all know the story of the two disciples to Emmaus. He appears to them. They don't know his Christ. He's under the veil of a human being that they can't recognize. And he doesn't say, by the way, here I am. He says, have you not read in the scriptures? Yeah? And starting from Moses and the prophets, he showed them that the Messiah must be crucified and suffer. And on the third day, he must rise again. So he gave them the key to which they can see him or to which they can um, they can have communion with him in other words yeah um, and it's not different to what we do in every service I'm pretty sure you guys think about this the two things that Christ did with the disciples of Emmaus was he opened the scriptures and he broke bread and the moment he does that he disappears and they're the two things that we do in the church we open the scriptures in different ways both physically um, liturgically um, ritualistically, interpretively, prayfully, that's by opening the scriptures and we break bread. And these are the two ways by which we commune with God. Okay? So that method hasn't changed. The style hasn't changed because that was the key given to us by Christ and ultimately it reflected clearly in St. Paul's time and in St. Peter's writing. St. Peter speaks about the Israelites moving through the Red Sea, parting of the waters, and he likes it to baptism. Same mentality, same key, interpretive key. So, with that in mind, because I'm just conscious of the time, I want us to go back to the first chapter and now read into that the same mindset that we've just discussed. Okay? So, Genesis chapter 1, page 7. Alright? I'm not going to read through uh, the whole entire book. I'm just going to probably take the first four days of Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And... I want you to read into it more spiritually, not just the literalism of it now. Just like St. Paul was saying, when they read the scriptures, their eyes are covered, there is the veil there, and until they believe in Christ, that veil is lifted. Now we're lifting the veil of the literal letters or the words to reveal Christ through them. And it'd be sometimes hard to see that, and that's part of why we need a spiritual mindset when we do so. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which other book starts with in the beginning? St. John. John, yeah. And in the beginning was the word. So, straight off the bat, the beginning here is not a time, but a person. Okay? In the beginning was Christ, the word. Just like Moses went up to receive the word. Yeah? And he saw the glory of God. So, for us, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is not the beginning of time and the end of time. It's the beginning of a relationship that God initiates with his creation. 
a person. And in him, as St. John puts it very clearly, in him all things were created. So in the beginning, in the Word, in Christ, God creates everything, the heavens and the earth. Okay? Straight, very straightforward so far. Okay? Um, so we have a very strong statement about God, but in the light of Christ. Okay? And everything that we know of creation and what we have not yet known about creation is there and will be revealed to us and we will discover it because Christ, it, because it's created in Christ. Alright? Now, from verse 2, the earth was without form and void, the darkness and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Does anything stand out here that's not right, at least in the first, for, for, like a question that may rise to our minds? Is it odd that the first time we speak, we come across a creation of God's hand, that it's void and darkness is on the face of the deep? Can anything dark come out of the hand of God? Why would God create something void? Just doesn't sound right. Sounds like there is something that is not yet completed or needs to be um, restored of some sort. Darkness is not part of God. Yeah? So there's a, a hint of fallenness in the text. Already implied. Some people have thought of it as this is the fallen creation um, of the celestial bodies, meaning the angels, um, and that God comes to work to figure this out further. Um, but I would argue and say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that includes all of creation, and then there was some fall of form, fallout, and darkness has entered God's creation of some sort. And it created disformity. And when you look at the principles of sin that separates us from God, it does these two primary things. It creates disformity, and darkness becomes the dominant in one person's life. And that it spreads across all of creation. So there is implied in there God who creates everything in His Son, the Christ, in the Word. Fallenness takes place of some sort. It's not clear how or what the purpose, but there is some form of darkness and void. And God's Spirit comes into the picture to try and bring forth back the creation that God had initiated. But the interesting thing is, as we know, um, the difference between God's spirit of activity in the Old Testament and in the New was in the Old, the Spirit of God did not dwell in man. He came for a purpose. He hovered, so to speak. Yeah? But there wasn't a rest of the Spirit on humanity until the Incarnation. The first person that He rests on permanently is in Christ, the perfect human being. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and visit and fulfill a particular purpose, but there's a cry from humanity, according to David, um, as we pray every single hour, um, and let not your Holy Spirit depart from me. Because they knew that there was a possibility for that to happen. That God's Spirit will not dwell in man unless 
God comes to save humanity once again. Correct, for a purpose. Yeah. But it wasn't to make the human being a temple of God. It was simply to fulfill the purpose, <laughs> to build up the moment by which he prepares humanity for that reception. Yeah? So yes, there was a function, but it wasn't a dwelling. Yeah? You never see it in the Old Testament that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah? So, there is implied in there a creation that ended up void and darkness. The Spirit of God was leading it to a sense of perfection or a sense of a, a reception to the, the desired outcome, to the desired dwelling. Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The first time we see God speak. Yeah? And um, when God speaks, He speaks one thing and one thing only, His Word. Yeah? That's the final revelation, His Word, Christ. Okay? And so there implies, there and then, the Incarnation comes as light in darkness. And again, St. John talks about, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Yeah? So, you have a creation that's in Christ that has fallen away, the Spirit of God pulling that creation to make it receptive to God's dwelling, the incarnation in God speaking His Word as light into darkness. Yeah? He continues, I'm moving relatively quickly here because there's a lot more to discuss in every one of those, but just because I'm conscious of time. Verse 4, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So, God saw that the light, and that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Um, the first declaration about Christ was, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Yeah? That's exactly what John the Baptist sees. Yeah? He was pleased with him. God saw that the light was good. He appeared to be a human being just like one of us, but yet he was different to one of us. He received God's Spirit and was baptized like one of us, Yet he is the righteous one who did not need to be baptized. And so um, he was called good, but God still divided the light from the darkness. Yeah? So he still has a uniqueness to him from the rest of us. And in some sense he was divided from us, yet he was one of us. Is everybody following through? Yeah? Distinction without separation. Exactly. Yeah, distinction without separation. Now... Verse 5, God called the light day. First time we see God naming something. Yeah? The name of the son of Mary and Joseph was not given by Mary or Joseph. It was given by God. His name shall be called Emmanuel, for he will be amongst us. God will be amongst us. And they named him Jesus because God will save. Yeah? So the name 
that, that God calls the light day is the naming that God wanted to give the birth of Christ and give him his identity. Is Emmanuel a Greek name? Sorry? Emmanuel. Emmanuel? It's Greek or Hebrew? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Hebrew. Emmanuel. Yeah. Like all the L's at the end is a Hebrew. Yeah, Michael, Gabriel. Yeah. Um, so, God calls the light day and Jesus is given his name from Gabriel, from God. Yeah? And the darkness he called night. Again, the same concept. Alright? Now, so the evening and the morning were the first day. This is the first day. Alright? It's not by accident that, again, I'm just referring to the Gospel of John, but without going into too much detail, but the Gospel of John also has days. In the second day, and it talks about another part of creation. Okay? So, there is creation in Christ. There is separation that caused darkness and void, which, are, which is a personification of what sin does to us. There is the Spirit of God trying to draw us to Him until we find God speaking to us His Word and enlightening our darkness, which is the Incarnation. And He gives us an identity that shows His righteousness and our sinfulness, but yet we are saved despite of that. Yeah? Okay? So, let's move into the purpose of the Incarnation from verse 6. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Okay? So, it's a little bit tricky to see this, but when you look into the Hebrew in, um, a translation of the word firmament, it's literally like a sheet that separates. Yeah? Um, and uh, when you see the description of how this firmament is dividing waters, so to speak, it's dividing waters on two planes, the horizontal plane and the vertical plane. So it's dividing the waters from the waters and the waters from above and the waters from below. Yeah? What picture does that paint? Across. Across. There is a division that separates the horizontal plane and the vertical plane. And is not one of the description, according to St. Paul, is that Christ crucified is a stumbling stone to the Jews, yeah? Um, but to us it's the power of God. It's salvation. Yeah? Not only was he a division, was, was the crucifixion a division even for his own disciples? How can the Messiah die? The Messiah lives forever. And that wasn't a point of negotiation with Christ. Unless you want to be my disciple, you carry your cross and you follow me. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, flesh and bone did not reveal this to you, but the Son of Man must die and be crucified. Far be out with you. That's outrageous. Yeah? Um, even on the literal sense, Christ gets crucified in the middle of what we call the Middle East now, middle of the world, 
and he does get he got, he gets crucified between two people that actually shows a division. One says, "Save me." The other one says, "If you're the son of God, save yourself and save us with you." So the sign of the cross or the life of the cross is always going to be a point of division in this world. It's always going to be a way by which it shows the real people that follow Christ in some way or the other. In other words, if you squeeze a Christian, if you squeeze somebody, if they show the sign of the cross in the way they are being squeezed in persecution and it comes forth as light and, and love, then you are a follower. It's always a point of tension or it's a two-edged sword. And it cuts on the, at the heart of every single reality for every one of us. And so there is a firmament that divides those who are on the right with Christ and those who are heavenly from the earthly. That's what the cross does. So the incarnation and the crucifixion of salvation. Now, the interesting thing is this, and I didn't point it out before. On the first day, God saw that it was good, creating the light. But when it came to the second day and the firmament, and he speaks about a separation, there's no mention that it was good. It's going to come up later, but it, there's no, God doesn't praise the second day yet doesn't qualify it, so to speak, with, and it was good. I once attended um, a thousand people orchestra in the opera house, male and female. It was just, you can feel it on the back, your hair standing on the back of your neck. And um, the opera, sorry? It was full, but not only that, it was um, so humbling because the, the hymn that they were singing was Genesis chapter 1. And the chorus that everybody sang together and it was just felt like you were in heaven was, and it was good. And God saw it and it was good. It was almost like the statement of God's ultimate purpose to see goodness in his creation. But only day two there is no it was good. Which is really interesting. Yeah? So, the crucifixion without the resurrection is not salvation. But it's not that the resurrection is the correction of the crucifixion. It's not that it went really bad before God made it really good. That salvation is both in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. They're seen as one reality. That's why for us to die daily is to live unto God. There's death and resurrection in the process. It's not two separate events and one is correcting the other and one is kind of making right of something that went wrong. Yeah? So, let's move into that, um, that next phase of salvation. Oh, sorry, let me point something even clearly out. Um, verse 8, And God called the firmament heaven... So the evening and the morning were the second day. Um, interesting that God calls it heaven. Yeah? What's the original translation? Heaven. Heaven. <coughs> that didn't change that one, actually. Yeah. The reason why I found that really interesting is because those who are quite faithful, they don't see the crucifixion 
as something that is burdensome, but they see it as the means by which they can commune with God and feel God's presence. Carry a cross. Uh, a beautiful story that never slips my mind every time I come across these passages of a, a cleric um, um, uh, in Egypt who was well renowned for his Islamic faith and as a teacher. And he uh, has an apparition, he converts, which was a great scandal in Egypt, especially if he's one of the top clerics of the Islamic community. Um, and so to get him to recant his faith, they don't leave him to just come to his own conclusions. There's a lot of pressure, both politically, psychologically, and ultimately physically. And they threw him in dungeons, in overnight dungeons for many months without seeing light, with persecutions, with you know, um, famine, just to make sure that he can try and recant. And he describes his, he describes his levels of tortures one of the tortures that he experiences is that his hands were tied and they were scourging him. And um, the type of scourging was similar to that of Christ where the whip had nails and you know, it was going to grip into you. And he said, when the first stroke came across my back, I felt like my soul was going to escape from my body, from how heavy it was. And I wanted them, I wanted them to probably kill me sooner than to, get, to continue with this persecution. He says, but when the second one hit, I saw him. And when I saw him, I did not want them to stop. So that's what he saw, heaven. What's his name, Scott? Best not to mention it, <laughs> for the recording sake. How did you know the story? I've heard the... The testimony. Is it available publicly? I've heard it many years ago, so yeah, it was on a CD back when we had CDs. Yeah, so it was kind of handed out on, you know, because it was a big deal at that time. But the point is, it's not any different to someone like St. Stephen, who at the point of being persecuted and carrying his cross, he sees heaven. And that reality is until today. Those who carry their cross faithfully to that end, look at the crucifixion or the passions of being a Christian as heaven. So it's not by accident that God calls the firmament heavens. So, moving on, verse 9. Thanks, Ava. Then God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And there we go, here's the kicker. And God saw that it was good. Yeah, here's the seal. So, now we went from creation, to the fall, to the incarnation, to the identity of Christ, his calling to be crucified, and his followers that are following that same pattern, which denotes that those who follow into the crucifixion with Christ see heaven, and now the resurrection. Now, um, the waters that were gathered together um, into one place, does that not ring a bell at the time of the resurrection? Were they not all gathered together in one place? Yeah, the disciples, that's exactly what. And then what happens? 
and let the dry land appear. Yeah? Now, that word, let the dry land appear, in the Greek translation of Hebrew, is anastasis, is to resurrect, is to come forth. And is that not exactly what happened? They were all gathered together, afraid of what would happen to them as being his disciples. And then three days later, he appears amongst them. Yeah? And God calls the dry land earth and he gathers together um, and, and gathers together the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. So now the foundation by which Christianity stands on is not only the death of Christ but his resurrection. And St. Paul makes it very clear if Christ did not rise from the dead then our faith is futile and we might as well go home and pack up. Yeah? But if Christ rises from the dead then all of reality is different. Then we have a firmness that we stand on. Yeah? So that firmness, that foundation that we stand on is the foundation of the church. Meaning the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning death can't touch it. And so from that foundation, from, so to speak, the earth being Christ and the, his, his being the resurrection, everything sprouts from that earth. Life has now come forth from that earth. And so that's where you and I come to the picture. That's where the body of Christ comes in now. Because of Christ's work, we are an extension of the resurrected life in Christ. Yeah? That's why we participate in his body and in his blood. And we are told that it's to be given for the remission of sins and eternal life to those who partake of it. Yeah? Meaning the, fa the fountain of eternal life is being poured into us and we're just being planted into Christ who is the resurrection for us. You are our life, our healing and our resurrection. So, this is why from verse 11, the, this is now day 4 coming in. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed in its, is in itself on the earth, and so it was. And the earth brought forth the herbs that yield seed according to its kind, and the trees that yield fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Again, so now this is you and me where Christ is the seed and we are the fruits. We're being planted in, and we have an expression, um, a, a psalm that we pray sometimes in some of the liturgies, where we call on to God as being the vine dresser, and return again, O Lord, it's a, taken from a psalm, return again, O Lord, and look down upon the vine which you have planted. Yeah? Yeah, return. it's the hymn that we have in our... It, God has planted a vine, Christ is the, is the foundation of that, and we are his branches. That's why every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Yeah? Okay? So, and it, keeping in mind that God sees that it was good, and the reason why it was good, look at verse 13, so the evening and the morning were, which day? The third day. Yeah? 
And we know that for us, the third day is nothing but the day of the resurrection. And for every liturgy, it's the day of the resurrection, by the way. Today is the day that the Lord has made. It's the day of the resurrection. Yeah? Is everybody following? Have I missed out? Yeah? So you have the beginning in Christ, the separation of sin causing deformity and darkness, the light shining in darkness in the Incarnation, the identity of this Incarnation, and the death of His uh, sacrifice, which He calls Heaven, from which He appears to those who are gathered together in the Resurrection, and then He becomes the foundation of which the rest of His body will be built on. And those events are all happening in the third day. And it was not good on the second day. It was only good on the third day. Yeah? That's why they never say good for the second day. Correct. Yeah, it hasn't been completed yet. Yeah? Okay. So, verse 14, and we'll probably end with that, um, it, it, this, this part of Genesis. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Okay? So, on a more materialistic, literal sense, we can always say this is the creation of the stars, this is the creation of the moon and the sun. And the one that's lesser is the moon, the one that's greater is the sun, and the one that's ruling the day is the sun, the one that's ruling the night is the moon. That's on a literal sense. But for us, where does he, where does he raise our eyes to? Heaven. Yeah? Automatically he's talking about Christ going to his resurrection, his ascension. And St. Paul, when he speaks about the ascension, he doesn't just speak about it as an event in Christ's life, he speaks about it as our event with Christ. When he went into the heavens and sat at the right, he drew us next to him. Yeah? In other words, not only is he the greater light and we are the lesser light, but we take, just like the moon takes the light from the sun, we take our holiness and our glory and our grace from the source. Yeah? And there is, that is, it's not by accident that we are in our church, we represent the saints as with halos around us reflecting His light. It's, his, it's their halo, but it's His glory. Yeah? And they're in the, in the celestial realm, in the heavenly realm, calling us to live to that, to that calling. You're following through with that, yeah? Now, the beauty is this is that he calls the, the, the lesser light, which is what we call the moon, to rule the night. And he called us to be the light of the world. Why? Because the world is filled with darkness and therefore we need light. But he's the source of it. We can't be self-sufficient. It's his reflection that we have to take in. And that's why it's still good. Yeah? I have a question. 
Yes, please. Yeah, so I'm not sure about the play on with the capitals um, in the sort of in the text, um, but uh, there's a lot of contemplations, and I'm, I'm sure um, others have. What I've heard in the past is um, it's interesting that the light itself is created before the elements that are producing it, and it must be a light that is eternal and it's in God Himself. Yeah, um, um, and. Absolutely, it actually turns into something even more than just material. Um, you know, we're getting a little technical here. There's something called the uncreated light of God, meaning His own very presence. And we see that in some lives of the saints, where you know, if, whether they appear after their death or before their death, if they have that level of intimacy with God and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that they shine with that light that is not bound by the elements, so to speak. Yeah, but that's the reason why that the light shines in darkness, and that's the reason why it was more important to highlight that that was a referring to Christ than actual the the energies of 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 um, creation, if that makes sense. Okay, so this is the story of salvation in creation, in a very quick referenced way, um, because there's a lot more to it. Can I grab two, minute, two, two to five minutes of more of your time? But we'll jump into just Genesis chapter 2 um, very quickly. That's okay, Edwin. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll go quickly to verse 21. This is the creation according to the second story of the creation, um, the creation of Adam and Eve. Um, it's a bit more chrono chronological in the second event. And uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. This is now the quickly the the story of um, the creation of Adam and yep thank you um, and I'm sure a lot of us have read this in the past um, we're gonna read it three times very quickly first time as it reads the second time with certain words that hint towards what the original intention was in certain texts and then the third time in Christ okay? um, from verse 21 just to put it into context this is now the creation of Eve coming forth from Adam after the fact that God created Adam, he created the animals, but Adam found no helper for him. So no one like him, so to speak. All right, from verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Yeah? Um, I'm very certain you've read this text before. Um, anywhere else... Someone's at the door, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. Anywhere else, you might have come across that last reference. Um, in particular, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Jesus said it to who? Uh, he said it to the Jews who were asking him about um, divorce. Yeah. 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 Who else? Who else has mentioned that that phrase? Saint Paul. Saint yeah. Paul. Yeah. Um, we 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 actually read them both in the marriage marriage ceremony. Um, one is from the, um, the Gospel of Matthew, when, in that reference that Freddie points out, and the second one is in um, in in, Eph- in Ephesians. Um, chapter 5, yeah, that's right, where St. Paul talks about the role of the, the wife and the role of the husband, and he ultimately quotes this reference, yeah? And he says, but I speak about a greater mystery than just the role of the wife and the role of the husband, okay? It's supposed to reflect something deeper, okay? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing, just so maybe to tickle your fancy a little bit more, um, does anything sound odd about this particular verse therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh anything i know i know what you're going to say mother. i've heard you say this before no there's two things that there's one there's an obvious one i think we should <laughs> yeah you're talking about the crucifixion right no that's but what jesus said on the yeah cross. but there's a bit more to there's a bit more than that i'm talking about it just purely textually speaking So there's, a, there's a, an obvious question here. If they're the first creation, what mother and what father is he referring to? That's the first question. The second question is more of a cultural question. We know, in, especially from the backgrounds we come from, Middle Eastern culture and Jewish culture, that the man does not leave his father or mother. It's the woman that leaves the father and mother and goes to live with the husband, which is usually at... Yeah, usually in his own village. This is a cross-cultural issue here. Did Moses make a mistake writing this? Did he slip on the cultural norms? Did he go, hold on, first creation, why is there a mother and father? Who are the mother and father if there is a mother and father? Or was there something more to it? There had to be something more to it. There's no other explanation to this. He wasn't ignorant of his culture, and he certainly wasn't ignorant of the reality that they were the first creation of God's creation. Why would he put these texts in, these words in, unless there was more to it than what the eye first meets? Yeah, yeah, so there's... there's Correct, well done, yeah. So there is actually something deeper than than what we first meet in the reading. That's exactly why Christ uses it and St. Paul uses it. And St. Paul makes it even very clear about what his intention of that text was. Now, let's read this text one more time in a bit more Hebrew words that just jump out at us, and then we'll read it in the light that you read it. Yeah, well done. So, verse 20, uh, 21, Then God caused a deep ecstasy to fall on Adam. And it's not the illicit drug that Fred is laughing at. <laughs> it's not the illicit drug. The deep ecstasy is actually a state by which um, some very spiritual um, saints experience 
where they, um, they're almost in a trance, so to speak, where they are conscious because they're so connected in prayer and in communion with God that their body seems to be out of the norm. So they're almost asleep, or, but they're actually, their spirits are awake. They're not unconscious. They're very conscious. And one church father points out saying, um, how did Adam come to recognize that that was his wife and that God reveals to him in that moment of ecstasy? Yeah? That what was going on. So there's a revelation happening in the background. It's not an unconscious sleep. It's a deep ecstasy. Okay? So there's an awakenfulness, but it seems on the outside as, as if he is unconscious. Yeah, he's alert, but he's physically unconscious, so to speak. Yeah? Um, um, this will become important, as you pointed out, because iconographically speaking, when we depict Christ on the cross crucified and, in, and, die, and dead, his eyes are meant to be opened. Not because he's not dead, it's precisely because he is the one that is always awake despite of his death. The one is always in control despite of his out of being controlled, so to speak, in dying. He gives up himself willingly in control, which is really powerful. Yeah? Okay? So, um, um, and the Lord God caused a deep ecstasy to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he built into a woman. Not he made, he built. It's a work in progress. Okay? And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was extracted out of man. It's an extraction, not just taken. Yeah? Therefore, a man shall, the word is abandoned, not leave. His father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the vocabulary there is, it's a type of cleaving or a glue that if you were to separate, it damages both. Like if you put two pieces of paper and try to tear them apart, you tear both. It's basically an inseparable union, not designed to be separated. Yeah, that's why the reference that you mentioned about when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, God gave them permission to, um, Moses gave them permission to divorce because of the hardness of the heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. Yeah? Okay? Alright? Now, um, and, and they were both exposed or naked, and the man and his wife um, and were not ashamed. Okay? One last time, I think we kind of figured out the context. Now let's, let's layer it into um, Christ and his church. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Christ. And he slept. Yeah? And he took one of his ribs, meaning he had to open the side. Yeah? And what came out? Which are the two things that we are sustained on as the body of Christ. Baptism and the Eucharist. And his blood. Yeah? That's what came out. There's actually a um, a, a, a prayer in one of the fractions in our liturgy where it reflects upon the crucifixion and it says and he was open to his side that we may enter once again where we came from yeah okay um, so 
um, verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from Christ, he built it into us, you and me, because we were taken out of Christ. And he's working on us all the time. We're a work in progress until we are found to be in the full image of Christ. Okay? And he brought me and you, the church, to Christ. And Christ's reaction is this. This is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Yeah? And then, as you pointed out, as it happened on the cross, therefore... Christ shall, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he looks at his mother and he says, Behold, John, your mother, and Mary, behold your son. He abandoned, he's abandoned by his father and he abandons his mother to cleave to who? You and me. The church. Yeah? And they shall become one flesh. And because of that, we are both exposed to each other. He doesn't hold anything back and he knows me inside out. But we are never ashamed. So, I think there's a bit more to it than what verse meets the eye. That's enough for me tonight. <laughs> Any questions? Anyone wants to add? In? Yes, please. There was a, uh, vertically. Well, in ancient times, there was always the This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.